Hello, and welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space with Carter and Carrie. If you are new to our channel, Deprogrammed is a series that we do that explores my old belief system, which I most often call social justice ideology. Um, we are joined today with a special guest, Paul Vanderclay, and I'm going to let Carter introduce him. Carter, are you there? I am indeed here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. Yes, we're Sorry, joined by. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, we're joined by Paul Vanderclay. Uh, Paul is the pastor of the Living Stones Christian Reformed Church in Sacramento, California. A couple of years ago, he started a YouTube channel uh, diving into the implications of the work of Jordan Peterson, who I know a lot of people uh, on this channel are familiar with and like. Uh, since then, he's been pastoring a following online of people who want to have substantive and honest conversations among all sorts of people about meaning and what matters to them. Uh, so I think he'll fit in well with our community. Uh, you can follow Paul and uh, see his videos. He's got a lot of videos on his YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Paul Vanderclay. That's P-A-U-L-V-A-N-D-E-R-K-L-A-Y. I will put the link in the show notes so that you can just go click on it. Uh, Paul, welcome. It's great to be here. Paul, I, um, I was saying this to you before the show, but I just want to repeat it. You are probably our most requested guest on Unsafe Space. So I'm happy we're finally getting to do this. I wonder what I've done to deserve that <laughs> honor. <laughs> well, I think it might be uh, maybe one of the reasons is because I used to be what I call a social justice warrior um, for about 20 years. And then I kind of underwent this transformation that started about three years ago, four years ago, 2016. And uh, one of the, it wasn't the only thing, but one of the key things in my transformation was discovering Jordan Peterson's videos. And in the past couple of years, I've become a, a new Christian. Um, Carter's an atheist. We have some good discussions about the differences in opinion, but for the most part, we share found our, a lot of foundational beliefs, so it doesn't really get in the way. And um, we have I'm a kind lot of more of a, a Jordan Peterson style atheist, though, that respects right. the, the, <laughs> the historical values of Christianity. So Carrie and I are able to have interesting discussions sometimes about that. Um, yes. Uh, well, I could see how that fits into my channel then. OK. Yeah. We, so we have a, a mix of people who we have everyone from atheists to Christians who watch the show. And I would say both types of viewer have suggested you. So I'm really curious about your channel and how it started um, with your Jordan Peterson series. Can you tell us a little bit about why you started this, the show? Sure. So I've been, I grew up in a, what became a racial reconciliation church in Patterson, New Jersey. My father was a pastor and he was raised in the Midwest and his father was a pastor and moved to Patterson to really kind of take a, was kind of a gospel and sandwich mission and turn it into a real church. Uh, a lot of Patterson, where I grew up, a lot of folks had migrated up from the South. Um, so I grew up um, in a church that was experimenting with racial reconciliation in the 60s and 70s. And so that was the context of, of my life growing up. I so on Sunday, we worship mostly with black folks during the week, as is, was the Dutch Reformed tradition. I would go to a school with mostly Dutch Reformed folks. 
And so I always had kind of feet in both camps. Eventually, after college and seminary, I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic, where I worked with Haitians who were illegal for the most part in the Dominican Republic, um, working for the government of all people, uh, cutting sugarcane and sometimes picking coffee. And then I moved here to Sacramento, California to a very multi, almost everything congregation. And so I've always been used to navigating the boundaries of cultures, where black and white in America, Haitian and Dominican. One, one of the things that made me sensitive to were the um, some, some of the theological boundaries that existed. And so one of the things I paid a lot of attention to was the strangeness of having people be very committed to a Bible that if you read the first chapters, you would very much believe that the earth stands on pillars and there's a dome on top and there's waters above and waters below, yet everybody going to church imagines that we're on, a, on this round ball whizzing through space going like this. And so I've always been sensitive about those two worlds. And when Jordan Peterson came along, I noticed that he was changing people. Yes. And I wanted to know why. And I had noticed that for, you know, especially here in Blue State, California, for years I had seen people who had grown up in the church leave the church for either atheism, become Sam Harris fans, or maybe sort of a new age thing. They do yoga on Sunday morning or coffee with friends. And then, and that was pretty much a one-way street. And I began paying attention to the comment threads under Jordan Peterson's videos, Reddit, other places, and I began noticing a bunch of people saying, I've become interested in the Bible, and I'm kind of curious about church. And I thought, well, Jordan is kind of in the midst of this crazy culture war battle about pronouns, and, you know, he doesn't go to church, and I, I wondered you know, who's going to talk to these people? And yeah. so I thought, I'll talk to these people because I'm a pastor. I know something about the Bible. I know something about culture. And I was playing around with YouTube. I had a show on my YouTube channel called The Freddie and Paul Show, um, where you can still find it on my channel. Freddie and mm -hmm. I continue to do it. He's a member of my congregation who wanted to be on TV. And I said, well, I don't know if I can arrange that, but you know, I'll put us on YouTube. <laughs> and so that was about it, except for a bunch of sermons and things on my YouTube channel. And I wanted to talk about Jordan Peterson and didn't have a lot of other colleagues who were interested in him. And so I made a video and I went from 15 subscribers to 300 subscribers in a matter of days. And I thought, well, this is strange. And I really freaked out when it hit a thousand because I wasn't looking to have my life changed. I just wanted a couple of conversation partners. Yeah. And then when it hit 2000, I said, now this has really got to stop um, because <laughs> I don't want all this attention. And, but then it kept going. But I began to notice people wanting to have conversations with me. And what am I going to do? Say no? I'm a pastor. And they want to talk about the Bible and about God and about their stories and about how they... They used to be Sam Harris fans, and now they're listening to Jordan Peterson, and they're not so sure. And so I kept making videos, and I kept having conversations. And 
I kept doing meetups, and the demand for all of those things kept rising. So I've been doing it all along. And a lot of people say, well, that's a strange thing for a pastor to do. I don't really find it a strange thing for a pastor to do, because I think this is exactly what pastors should be doing. And this, in fact, has given me more opportunity to do what I think pastors should do than I ever had before in my life. So the church is still small, about 10 or 20 times more people listen to me online than listen, or maybe 100 times in some cases, than listen to me in church. So I'm sort of riding this wave, seeing where it takes me. And of course, along the way, the whole woke thing happened, and that wasn't accidental either, because in my church life, I had been, I had always been sort of on the left side of my denomination. The Christian Reformed Church is sort of a moderate denomination. I'd always been on the left because, of course, I grew up in a racial reconciliation church. I was in favor of women serving in ecclesiastical office, and I was just watching the ongoing conversations in the denomination. Until about 2012, 2013, I began to hear something new. Mm. And I listened and I thought, this, the rationale for addressing the concerns of, let's call them gender or sexual minorities, seems to have shifted from the rationale and concerns that I was used to addressing with respect to women and race. And the more I dug into this, the more I began to believe that a new religion had come into my denomination and was being propagated by people who didn't understand that this was fundamentally a different religion than they had grown up with and that the church had been ministering with. And so that other aspect caught my attention. And so my channel has sort of been on these different frontiers in terms of conversation. That's actually, Paul, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, I, But that last point you made, that's something I've been fascinated with because as a new Christian, and I would fall into the camp of many people who started reaching out to you because I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, but I left that behind over, it, it was a, much like my recent transformation, it was a period of maybe two to three years where I kind of walked away from those beliefs between the ages of 16 and 19. And then looking back on it now, I I view the woke ideology, what you're calling the woke ideology, I call social justice warrior ideology. I fell into that for about 20 years, and that was my faith. And so transitioning out of that, and then, and then also becoming a Christian, which the old me would never... <laughs> have seen coming. It would totally think that's hilarious. <laughs> I Sometimes I put myself back in my old self and I look and I'm like, oh God, she would really have a lot to say. But, um, but becoming a Christian, I just didn't expect to find the woke religion in the Christian church. I was a bit naive. And the way you described it as a new religion that had come into your denomination, that's exactly how I'm viewing it is it's a separate, it's a different religion. It's not the gospel. So um, I guess, can you talk a little bit about why it is, is there something about Christianity in, that makes Christians susceptible to this belief system? 
Well, I think this, I, I, back in about 2014, I dubbed this progressive liberationism. Okay. Because I think that's, that's fundamentally what it's about. I think it is a Christian heresy. And what I mean by that is in many ways it is built upon certain, certain values and strains within Christianity. I think it is an adaptation to secularism because, in a sense, Christians traditionally have embraced a, an ethic of, traditionally it was called mortification, self-sacrifice, that we will, we, will, we will give up ourselves for the welfare of another. And of course, that is exemplified in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that here is a man who is beaten and bloodied by his political enemies and made an example of by his political enemies. And in a, and in a context which had a culture war at least as fierce as our own, the only thing that the Romans and the Jewish nationalists could agree on was that the world would be better without Jesus. And so they, according to pretty much everybody's, even, even if they have a very skeptical position on, on the Bible, almost everybody can agree that Jesus Christ was killed by the Romans in collaboration with the Jewish authorities. Why would these bitter enemies be able to agree that Jesus should die? And then... The testimony of Luke, for example, that, that he inherited and pieced together is that on this cross, they are mocking him and they are saying, you know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Mm -hmm. And here this man would both um, cry out the prayer of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So this is something that is at the heart of Christianity. Progressive liberationism is actually ironically akin to, um, to the prosperity gospel. And so part of what's going on in American culture right now is, is there's actually a deep similarity between kind of the, the type of Christianity that Donald Trump has forefronted and the kind of Christianity that hates Donald Trump's guts. And... Wow. They're, they're both sort of a, a secularist narcissism that says what's fundamental is my lived experience and having the most pleasing experience from zero to 80. And the politics of that changes depending on the lived experience that one might have, but the value is the same. And that's a dramatic departure from a religion founded by a man who's killed in his early 30s, and aside from a a um, a dramatic performance that he plays in the temple and clearing out the money changers, the thing, the kinds of things he was most hated for was not being brutal to the other side of the culture war. And so the Romans, they kind of looked at him and didn't understand him. But the, the Pharisees and the Essenes and some of the other sects that really wanted the Romans out, well, he was soft on Rome. That was his problem. And so Jesus has always been rather dramatically hard to figure out. 
And I think the church does best when it lives that way. But what we've seen over the last 30, 40 years is that in many ways churches have sort of taken sides in the culture war and not being able to recognize that, well, you know, the left has some important points and the right has some important points, and we should be able to have a bit of freedom to critique both sides. But what happens in a culture war is basically what happens in a gang war, which is if you don't join a gang and show yourself loyal to that gang, you know, everybody's going to come after you. And that's what's happening. Can can you expound on something a little bit? Um, Because it's interesting to me that you say this. I, I, so I'm an atheist now, but I, I grew up fundamentalist Christian. And one thing that as an outsider to the Christian community currently, one thing that, um, I'll say almost bothers me (laughs) is I feel like most Christians in the West don't take their beliefs seriously. They go to church on Sunday. um, They say some stuff, but they don't live by their beliefs. They know their beliefs aren't their guide. Everything else, they're they're guided by the same thing that the rest of the secular world is guided by. And uh, it's fascinating that you're kind of putting the Donald Trump Christians and the radical social justice Christians in the same camp. I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit further, because I find that fascinating. Well, I would, so not only, so so along the way, I've, you know, I discovered Jordan Peterson. I began having substantive conversations with, with John Verveke, who is a colleague of Jordan Peterson, but very much stays away. He's pretty much over in the cognitive science, philosophical, and, and John Verveke, you know, holds meditation. Uh, YouTube's every morning, so he, he's 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 not in the Christian camp. But along the way, I discovered the work also of Tom Holland, who, mm-hmm. in many ways, his book Dominion validated an observation that I had that most qu- Christians in the secular world are far more secular than they would acknowledge of themselves, and most atheists in the West are far more impacted with with Christianity than they imagine themselves to be. And right. and for that reason, you'll see that, well, this person's going to church and this person isn't, but 96% of their life looks nearly identical. Mm-hmm. And people can sort of slide in and slide out of churches quite easily. And so as a pastor, you have to ask, well, is, is what I'm doing here, does it make a difference? Does it help anything? Does it, does it change anything? So... I think part of what has gripped our culture is a deep narcissism. And and what that narcissism is, I think, is a byproduct partly of, of secularism, because if there's not if there's not a value in another world to shoot for, all of our values must be found here. A a theologian named Miroslav Volf grew, um, you know, was a young adult in the Yugoslav Civil War. And one of the things he noted was that if there's no such thing as either divine judgment or divine reward, then all judgments and rewards must be obtained in this world. Well, that will intensify something like common, you know, common animosity, rivalry, and competition. Because if I'm going to get, if I'm going to enjoy my best life now, 
well, I better get it in while I have my health and, you know, I better, if this is the only world I can get it in. So suddenly the competition rises. It sounds also, like you're talking part, a little bit about some hedonism, though, as well there, not just narcissism. Is it only narcissism? Well, absolutely. Well, okay. absolutely. So, and so in, in sort of Donald Trump's lifestyle, well, that's just obvious. I mean, this is a man who had golden toilet fixtures. This is a man <laughs> who's on his third wife. And, of course, every time he had a new wife, she was younger and prettier than the one before. This is a man who has valued getting rich. And so when, as... I don't want to judge the man's heart, but when he, you know, when you look at the kinds of pastors he sidles up against, well, it tends to be prosperity gospel. That, you know, so I, you know, heaven, okay, but I want to cash in here and now, and that's what Jesus is there to help me with. Uh, so as a new Christian, I've just been learning what prosperity gospel is. I, I bumped up against some um I guess pastors of large churches with big followings and I'm naive not knowing, you know, I've, I just only heard that term in the past year or so. Can you guys um, explain it? Cause I don't actually know what you're talking about. If I were a prosperity gospel preacher, I would say God wants you to have your best life now. And I am going to tell you what you need to do for God's blessings to overflow in your life so that you will make more money, have better sex, your children will do better, you will have the life you've always dreamed of, and what you need to do for that is live God's way because God wants the best for you here and now and heaven besides. So That's it's like a Tony Robbins pastor. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. and right. and Saul would be just non-existent in this universe, or like not Mount That's Saul, right. but like okay, okay, Paul. okay. Yeah, I I view it Carter as like the you know this is the way to you know have God rain uh, luxury cars and expensive houses down on you. It's so that it's, so it brings but it brings God to a very practical level. It means that yes. uh, the the. It accepts the whatever actually is the even if it's not explicitly defined. It accepts the premises of what matters in life, just that are kind of defined secularly, and God as a tool in order to achieve those. That's that's kind of what you're saying. That's exactly right, and that's that's okay. that's ancient religion as well, not just you know Christian or for the most part the way ancient paganism worked was gods are sort of like these superheroes and they have certain habits and interests and if you can connect to them you can you know they can help you be bigger better stronger faster right. you, you pray to athena because you're going to war but otherwise exactly. who cares? right yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> right and that's yeah. how that's how paganism worked and, and in some <laughs> okay. ways christian that's christianity sort of assuming those things and you can find bible verses that sort of match with that you have a little bit of a difficulty arguing that Jesus lived his best life, you know, being crucified on the cross <laughs> with his friends, Kinda abandoning sucked. him. <laughs> yeah. Dark, well, darkly humorous. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I laughed at that, but it's true. No, that's, that's exactly. It's laughable. So, so, so that's over on, that's over one side of the equation. Well, how, how is the left narcissistic? Well, actually in many ways, we're trying to get our best social justice life here now for all of those people who are 
you know, the, the poor and the wretched and the oppressed and all of that. Now, again, there's another deeply Christian theme. You know, it, Israel and Egypt, who had forgotten the Lord's name, they cried out to him. I mean, God apparently answers unaddressed mail. And God swoops in, sending Moses, who was going to be a would-be liberator, who had failed basically, you know, at both of his life occupations. And God says, I'm going to send you in now, and this time it's going to work. And so here's the story of liberation. And, well, wonderful, slavery to freedom. People conveniently begin, stop reading then when the story doesn't get anywhere near as much fun, which is about the middle of the way through Exodus all the way to the end of Deuteronomy, where they're all languishing in the desert. And um, yeah, they then they're wanting to get back to Egypt. And so... And it, it, by the um, way, just yeah. to clarify, right, just because for me, because I don't remember completely... It wasn't like they wandered for a little while, like generation, like the next generation got to go there. Like like their life sucked, actually, for the rest of this time for many people. It's actually far worse than that because oh, they take okay. two years to get to the promised land and then they complain, there are giants in the land, we can't win this fight. And so God says, all right, you don't want to go? Back out into the desert, you go. You're all going to die over the next 40 years and your children are going to inherit the land. So the story is even darker than that. Okay. So so the left sort of appropriates a different kind of narcissism. And and you can find kind of find this in this lived experience thing. And so what the role now of the government in lieu of God is supposed to do is to afford everyone their best life now. That's the role of the government. But the value is the same. And we realize that all these other people aren't living the same kind of life as, you know, whiter people and wealthier people. And so the job of the government is to give everybody a leg up. There's something deeply Christian about that benevolence towards the poor and helping people. But there, as many have noted, there is also some certain disabling aspects to that position as well. And we begin to discover that this is this is something that I learned both growing up in Patterson and then working in the Dominican Republic. I, I went to the Dominican Republic imagining that, well, a dollar goes a long ways when people are living on 50 cents a day. Surely, um, myself, you know, I, I, you know, full of my own savior complex, surely me with my college education and a multi-million dollar mission agency behind us that is both doing Christian ministry and community development, doing all of this work, surely we can help these poor struggling Haitians have a better life. Well, it's a lot harder than you would imagine. And that was the story of my father's ministry in Patterson. And that's the story of my ministry in what we might call inner city Sacramento here. I have always gone to church with people of color. And when I heard this language come along, I was like, well, people of color, I'm thinking, which people of color? I've always known way more people of color than kind of the pasty pink thing that I am. So, you know, these these little slogans on both sides really break down quickly if you've actually lived devoting your life in a serious way to trying to, you know, benevolently help people who are struggling. And it's something interesting that you just you just I mean, there's a lot of interesting things you just said, but one thing that really just struck me that I want to uh, pull the thread of a little bit is uh when I became an atheist, I, I started to think like, oh, 
atheists don't believe in a god. And I think 99% of atheists actually are theists. They believe in the state as their god. And, um, and I call them state theists because they run around saying, we have no belief in a god. But actually, they do. They just don't believe in the Christian God, but they believe in a God, and it's the state. Um, and it, I just found it odd that you also pointed that out, that they just they turn to the state for everything. Um, and what you're, what you're reminding me of in, in Haiti is, is the, um, the teach a man to fish, right, rather than giving him. It's actually very difficult to get. Uh, it's actually very difficult to help people. Um, you actually need to figure out how to help them help themselves in order for that to be sustainable long-term. And that doesn't seem to be a focus of anything we're doing right now either. No, no. And, and I, you know, I watched my father spend 36 years of his life helping the people of Patterson, New Jersey, you know, was involved in Habitat for Humanity, ran a bunch of programs, but so I'm, I come from the sort of the Calvinist tradition where we have a very robust idea of sin and that it's pervasive and that, you know, let's say, let's say the United States discovered it could print money without repercussions and sort of put everybody on a hundred thousand dollar a year universal basic income plan. I don't know how much different or especially even better the lives of many of the people that I see struggle would be if you just gave them more money. In fact, you it know, might be the, worse. Many they might the, kill themselves with drugs. Yes. I mean, yeah. yes. Well, and, and in fact, the guy I was just talking to just outside my door here, he's already on UBI. He has government paid for health care. He has government, he gets every month the government puts $1,000 in his bank account. Um, he has simply decided that he doesn't want to spend his money on housing. He would rather spend his money on his, um, he, because he's figured out with his bipolar condition, he likes beer kind of keeps him only so drunk and a little bit of pot every now and then sort of takes the edge off. And so here is a guy who um, has four children, uh, all of whom are young adults now and an ex-wife who managed sobriety for a good number of years. And, you know, I, I look at all of the imagined solution to this person's life and I, I just don't buy these solutions because I've seen them up close, practiced on people for my entire life. And I think people are way more complex than that. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I wanted to get back to um, something you said earlier about the the two different types of narcissism in the church, like the sort of prosperity gospel type and then the the new woke gospel type. Um, did you use the word heretical? Yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, about the SJW woke version of the gospel and why you, you would use that word heretical? Well, Alistair McGrath wrote a book um, entitled Heresy uh, 10, 15 years ago. And even though after I mentioned this book quite a bit, some people read it and they said, I'm not sure you're reading McGrath right, but you might have a better idea. So I, I early in that book, McGrath basically asserted that a, a Christian heresy is an idea that's mostly Christian, 
but it has an aspect to it that is um, self-defeating of the faith. And so what happens in sort of a Darwinian mode, new, the church is always trying out new ideas because our cultural context is always changing. And, and in many ways, the way the church tries out new ideas is to live out new ideas. And so you have the prosperity gospel start and you have sort of the woke ideas start. And you, the church is always has these little fingers out, sort of like um, if you've ever dug up a tree or a root, you know, the roots always send out these little shoots. The church is always doing that. Over time, however, it becomes discovered that certain ways, certain ideas are fundamentally dead ends, that they won't satisfy, that there's that there's a defect in the logic within the system of thought that will be self-defeating. And and that's you know, that's so from Christianity. Um, the you know this particular progressive liberationism gets a lot of good ideas like generosity and cons- you know concern for the poor. Well, that's that's really important. And from Christianity gets the idea that you know skin color, um, God does not judge us differently on the basis of skin color. Also gets from Christianity, at least my take, because I'm not a skeptic of structural racism. I think our sin gets into all of our structures. Now, whether or not your imagined solution to these things, I'm I'm much more skeptical about those things, but I'm not skeptical of the idea that people get things wrong and they get things dramatically wrong. The, The way that this begins to trouble me is when, for example, as John McWhorter said, you know, he's recently called this new thing third wave anti-racism. And I think he's got that about right. So first wave, we could consider the Civil War abolitionism. Second wave, let's say the civil rights movement in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And and the ethos of that was colorblindness. And the manner, and so, you know, growing up, how I did, I'm a big, you know, fan of, you know, the history of the civil rights movement. That as King rightly said, you know, the we're going to judge people by the context of their character, not the color of their skin. So that's second wave anti-racism. Third wave anti-racism begins to continue. It continues to appropriate Christian ideas such as sin, but now calls it whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes surprise people because to this one interview with Mr. Reagan before he kind of blew up on conservative um, YouTube. And, you know, he said, you know, are you a racist? And I said, yes. And he's like, you know, it kind of took him a step back. Well, I'm a Calvinist. So, you know, that's going to manifest itself in racism. And so I just recently did a video on my on my channel about racism, because racism is an element of bias. And because of the work that I've done thinking about Jordan Peterson and cognitive science, we need biases in order to manage a far too complex world. Some of those biases, especially given our history, will be racial biases. And so similar to woke people who say, I've always got to get in touch with my inner racist. And I say, absolutely, get in touch with that inner racist. But I would say that's not just for white people. 
Black folks have an inner racist because they're human beings. Haitians and Dominicans, racism in the Dominican Republic played out in very different ways. Racism is common to humanity and nearly unavoidable just by the kinds of biological creatures that we are. Now you have the question, how can I address this? Well, I think you're exactly right that if you listen to Jordan Peterson and you begin to understand the history of the West, in many ways, the grand American experiment was to have, was to, in a sense, divinize the state and the law. And if we can place that up here, it becomes sort of an, becomes sort of a God and there can be justice and process. And, and this basically is how the United States attempted to have a secular government, but it borrowed heavily from the Christian tradition in the West. So, okay, I am in it. I do have an inner racist and I do have an inner sexist. And, and there's a part of me that is biased against same sex attracted people. And all of that is true. How do I, how is that unseated? Well, let's look at how the rest of sin is unseated. As a pastor, I know yelling at my congregation, even though I tend to yell and preach loud, <laughs> yelling at my congregation that they're racists and bigots and homophobes and and um, you know biased against the other sex, that doesn't address anything. You tend to harden people in their positions. You know, look at look at the the spouse of an alcoholic who is just nagging their spouse about their drug habit or their gambling habit. I mean, go to any Al-Anon meeting and you will learn something about what we know does and doesn't work about these core difficult sins in our hearts. And so when I watch what's happening in society, I think most of these social justice attempts at addressing racism are frankly simply going to make it worse because what we're doing is we're re-racializing everybody's bias calibrators and now when we see a video the first thing we look at is the color of their skin or whether at least from public appearances we can tell if they have their genitals on the inside or the outside that is a bad game and the social justice hierarchy, the difficulty that it has is that, so Christianity tries to put revelation above the constant food fight that is any human community. And that's why it says, well, the Bible is the word of God. So at least we have something out there objective. What, what the social justice ideology basically says is my lived experience, my experience of oppression is the one undoubtable thing in a kind of sort of Cartesian way. It's the something that it's this. It's the one thing I can't doubt. You know, I exist. You know, I am oppressed. Therefore, I am. Yes. But, wow. What a great point. <laughs> but everyone's oppression is going to be different, and so maybe you can have a little coalition of us with the same color skin or us with the same sexual orientation or us with the same experience of being hit on by men and we could form this little coalition for a while, but it's always going to break down because, frankly, because of intersectionality, because I am a man and I've often, frankly, found white to be ghosting me because I'm not really white. I'm sort of a Dutch Jewish mix. Um, who's had a particular growing up mostly around black folks. So 
you know, it's it's a it's a bad bad game that. Well, let's see. Let's tell. Let's tell a whole community of. Let's tell a whole nation of people that all of their suffering can be attributed to the Jews. Well, how does right. that turn out? You right. know. And so, in wow. my because I work with people of all different backgrounds, I hear firsthand, especially when young people say, "Why do white people hate me?" Well, I'm white. Do you think I hate you? No, not you. And so I hear us coming back around to a lot of the bad racial games that were in the context, you know, that basically the civil rights movement addressed. And so while, while they have a point that racism and sexism gets into structures and people who are motivated by this can use structures and express their animosities... Well, first of all, it isn't just limited to race and sex. And second of all, you're not actually going to address it by yelling at people and calling them names. That gets us nowhere. So something that I want to ask you about is, um, you know, when you talk about people having inherent, you know, maybe inherent racism or I think racism is actually a, a... probably a pretty easy one for people to see just biologically and evolutionarily. There's in-group and out-group preferences. There's like genetic reasons to to have ingrained feelings about other groups, right? Um, and we can recognize that uh, as immoral, but it doesn't, it doesn't negate what biological realities may exist. Um, my understanding, though, is that there's there's one group of beliefs, and I don't know if it's just like Judaism apart from Christianity, if there or if there's some Christian Christian beliefs that go this way, and then there's uh, a separate set of Christian beliefs whereby sin is in in one camp, sin is viewed as uh, sin is basically your actions. So uh, thinking or or feeling something isn't uh, doesn't condemn you, right? There's this there's this recognition that well, you're an imperfect being. You can think about murdering your neighbor, but that's not the same as murdering your neighbor, and you don't have to ask for forgiveness for thinking about murdering your neighbor, but uh, obviously if you try and take any action or steps in that direction, uh, you've sinned. Um, Whereas then there's like the, what I in my mind think of as like the standard kind of Catholic thing where it's like, I've had impure thoughts. Like the thoughts themselves need to be confessed, and those are sins. Can you um, tease that out and, and... and talk about, are there different beliefs, and where's that line between who believes what? Well, these beliefs tend to run through many Christian traditions. There are differences in detail in some groups. For example, the Roman Catholic Church has, you know, sort of categories of sin. In in my tradition, basically, we are we are all sinful— and in other words, we are imperfect, we are biased, there are all kinds of ways in which we do not reach our potential. And so one definition of sin is missing the mark, okay? If we don't live up to our potential, that's, that's in a sense, sinful. But you're right in that in all of the New Testament judgment passages, people are judged according to what they have done. So um, Matthew 25, where we have the sheep and the goats, they're all judged according to what they've done. But there's also a relational aspect to it. 
Um, at one in one parable, Jesus says, "Did we not um, heal the sick and raise the dead?" And Jesus says, "Depart from me, I never knew you." And so there's a relational aspect to it. So Christianity and the laws of the West have again been deeply shaped by. Christianity and Roman law, they basically kind of come together because of the history of Western Europe. And, and so we are um, in, our, in our culture, and I think this got refined in the 20th century by looking at what happened in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany. And I just, in fact, finished listening to one of these great courses series on the life of George Orwell. You know, very interesting listen, where we are rightly only judged according to what we do. And, and that got, and, and that's a very Christian idea. Now, a thoughtful Christian will, who, who wants to live a life pleasing to God will guard their thoughts because we have the understanding that if I dwell on something and dwell on something and dwell on something, eventually I'm going to give into it. Right, right. And so, and so that's something that you should take up with your pastor or your friend or your psychiatrist or your psychologist and, and deal with those thoughts, because thoughts and actions are pretty close together. But for the most part, we're judged according to what we do or don't do. But it seems like the social justice cult wants to judge you for uh, things that like you don't actually consciously do at all, right? Like. Uh, th there's this idea that you you have internalized whiteness or internalized misogyny, and like you, e no matter how vigilant you are about your trying to be, let's let's say you've got internal racism, but you try desperately to be colorblind. We'll say we'll say colorblind as much as possible. They will say like that's not a solution, and it doesn't matter actually what you do. You have it, even if you can't see it. You have it. There's no null hypothesis. You, you definitely have it and need to confess kind of your, I, I think Carrie would, would make the argument it's like original sin. You've got this like yes. original sin and yes. you need to confess that to the social justice cult and there's no acts that you can do that absolve you from having to confess this to the cult. No, you have to constantly, in my opinion, you have to constantly not only confess your privilege, but you have to point out others who have privilege. <laughs> <laughs> you have to rat out your neighbors. Yes. Well, and, and, and right there are two basic places where they stray from the script. And so, you know, when I first noticed this, in the Christian Reformed Church, one of our theological documents is the Heidelberg Catechism. And in many ways, what I see happening in the woke creed goes along with a lot of the Heidelberg Catechism, and on two points they stray. One point is the second point that you made, Carrie, that because I know I am a sinner, I do not have a position to look down on other sinners. Because I, in myself, I am no better than they are. And then the Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, what can be done about my sin? Is there something I could, is there something I could do that would finally atone for my inner racist and my inner, and my inner sexist? And the answer to the Heidelberg Catechism, similar to the woke, is no. There is nothing you can do to atone for it. And if you watch Jordan Peterson in the monk debate, I mean, and you can, I mean, you can play this game with people often. You can say, okay, reparations, okay. Put a price on it. Please tell me the dollar amount that will somehow atone for the 400 years of racial oppression 
that colonists and the American government and citizens have perpetrated on people hauled over from Africa or Native Americans. Please tell me a dollar amount. And very quickly, and this is part and parcel because of the lived experience thing, there is no dollar amount that can make that better. And the Heidelberg Catechism makes this exact point. It says you need, you actually need a sacrifice of infinite value. And no man can pay that price because he's a mere man, but a man must pay the price. And so the Heidelberg Catechism says what you need is someone who is both God, able to shoulder the burden, and man who is responsible to pay the price for the sins of our past. Mm. You see, there's no redeemer in this new religion. It's finally, yeah. and any Calvinist would recognize it, this is a self-salvation strategy. And, okay, live the whole of your life atoning, and where you're left with is the end of the movie Schindler's List, where I should have sold the ring, I should have sold the car. What could I have done to buy back one more Jewish life? Well, we cannot atone. There's a... Um, there's a really interesting article by, I think his name was Charles McKim. Uh, David Brooks um, referenced it in one, of his, in one of his opinion columns. The strange persistence of guilt. That what you find now without, see, so this wokeism is sort of latent in the culture. And the reason it's so successful is that it builds on the kind of guilt that we have been pumping into the society in a secular system. And so you have young people growing up saying, how can we atone for the environmental degradation that past, that that our fathers and grandfathers have put in? How can we atone for the, the, the casualties of unwitting viruses and malaria-borne mosquitoes brought over by explorers unwittingly that massacred 90% of the inhabitants of the Americas. How can this be atoned for? And so you've got everybody running around with this guilt because there is no process of atonement, but Christianity in fact had that. And then now with this, the clean slate offered by Jesus Christ, the, the descendants of slaves and slave owners can come together and both know each other to have been, at least their ancestors, guilty as charged, and to say, now on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we can move forward together as brothers and sisters. And this doesn't eliminate the pain of the past, this doesn't level the playing field, but what it does was give us the beginning of a chance to have a new start. Woke yeah. religion will not give you that. Yeah. I'm starting to see now how the woke religion, you know, you, you, you said there was the Trump side and the and the the woke side and how they were both kind of based in this secularism where the justice needs to happen on earth while you're while you're here. Um and I'm I'm seeing now from what you're saying that like, oh, if we have to atone for all those things while we're still alive, things historically that have happened, I mean that slavery, if you want to atone for slavery from previous generations, that's an infinite regression problem because every everyone that's living today has an ancestor who was enslaved by everyone else that was living. Like slavery is has been common, and so and and it's almost this butterfly effect. Like the guy did this thing over here unwittingly, and that had this catastrophic effect. You, you can't possibly atone for all this. Um, but I think I see that's that's where this like weird self destructive. 
idea comes in where, well, if you have to atone for all this all while you're living, it's it's this unsolvable problem that you'll go crazy trying to solve and ultimately destroy your own culture trying to solve. And, and so what we've done in the culture is what I've seen done in the church, whereas I'm going to stand up and I'm going to confess that I am a sinner. But that's all you got in the culture. And so you have to keep confessing. And so you have to keep paying. And and the reason I think that this particular ideology is particularly deadly to minorities is that at some point, people are going to say, Psh, I'm done with that. Yeah. And I am oh, a yeah. racist. I'll be a racist all the way. And if I'm going to get my best life now, I'm going to get it at your expense. Yeah. And, and, and this yeah. finally hurts the people that it purports to help. Well, yeah. I mean, we've talked about that a lot on the show, how this, like, they're putting up this false dichotomy, right, where they're saying, well, you have to be a racist, either for or against white people. And I think a lot of people that, that rec like, there's a lot of people that don't recognize this third option of, like, I could try and actually not exploit anyone, right? Like, I could not get it at the, anyone's expense. We could, we could try and not be horrible to anyone. But I think a lot of people, I think you're right, a lot of people are, they're going to get sick of saying, like, okay, well, if we have to be racist, I'm going to be racist in on the side that benefits me personally. And, like, okay, uh, that's a recipe for disaster, some of which you've, some of the disasters historically you've mentioned already. No, I agree. I have a question. I just sent you two two images, Carter. I'm wondering if you can pull them up. I want to get Paul's opinion on this. Um, this is I, I'm in. I joined a couple of these groups that have cropped up over the past month. It, since I, I view it as my old ideology has now become dominant culturally in every corporation, institution, um, on social media. And there are these groups that have cropped up on Facebook. Uh, a, a lot of them are called things like exposure, local racist. And there's one that it just started a month ago that I'm in. That's like 20,000 people and growing. And what happens in these groups, it's like a witch hunting group. They'll people post screenshots of friends and family and coworkers and people that they are invite the mob to pile on and they all go and attack them and contact their place of work. And, so some of the people they share in these groups have said things I would consider racist, but other people have not. They just disagree with this belief system, and then they're being targeted. And um, anyway, this is a post I saw in there yesterday. It's not they. It's a it's a picture of two guys, um, and someone took offense to the message that they were showing in the photo, and so they shared the photo in the group and talked about why they hated it and. Um, it's two guys. It's a black guy and a white guy, and they're holding hands, uh, and and they have a sign that says, "There's only one race in the body of Christ, and that's the Christian race." Galatians yeah. three twenty eight. Yeah. yeah. And then they have a website there that they're representing. You know, so someone shared this in the group, expose a local racist. Which, if you post someone in there, you basically inviting. You're telling other people to go attack these people. So he posted a screenshot of it, and he said. It is people like this who make me sick. Religion is the one thing that gets misused more than anything else in the world. It does not require being a Christian or religious at all to be a good person. This is not much different than all lives matter mentality. These guys are dismissing the black struggle by saying that the only race is Christians. 
seriously, if you're not Christian, then what are you? If we were truly one race and if all lives actually mattered, then why would there be a need for a movement called Black Lives Matter? Um, I'm just wondering, could you, I just want to get your opinion on, I've seen a lot of animosity towards Christian statements of unity and unity in Christ and forgiveness and grace. I've seen a lot of hatred toward it. And just your perspective on what is animating that, like, where does that come from? This, you can see something that's a very positive message and then, and then witness a very visceral, uh, uh, almost, almost like they're, they're repulsed by it. And where does that come from? I think some of that is from, so church attendance reached its peak in the United States during the Cold War. And to be a credible American during that time, you went to church. Uh, We were fighting, our rivals were godless communists. After the Cold War, our rivals became religious fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. And we saw the rise of the new atheists um, around September 11. And, you know, celebrity atheists like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens really built big careers. There are a lot of people out there who were raised Christian and it didn't go well. Their church was abusive. Their parents were abusive. You know, their experience with the Christian community was very negative. And one of the things that I learned, I did a conversation with James Lindsay over a year ago now, because, you know, Peter Bogosian, he he and Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian had written the hoax papers. And I had known Peter Bogosian's name because of his manual for creating atheists. And so he's part of this atheist tribe. And there are certain Christians that kept squaring off against these atheists. And I never really got into that game too much. But I began noticing that a bunch of these hardline atheists like Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay we're, we're now suddenly in league with Christians of a certain kind. And so then in talking to James and a little bit of research afterwards, I noted that, you know, the Church of Atheism sort of had a split, too. Yeah, social and, justice destroy—I'll say as an atheist, I used to call myself a evangelical atheist, totally loved Christopher Hitchens, like all those people, Sam Harris. Yep. Social justice infiltrated that and totally destroyed I mean, to interrupt, but, like, yes— you're totally right yep and and so when you look at something like that i think part of that is that expressing so just talking a little demographics in terms of american demographics the racial population most likely to be on church on a sunday morning are black americans they are the most christian segment of the american population and so you know, there are many African-Americans who, for whom, oh, I, think, I think just generally, unless you're a political nerd paying attention, most people just go about their business with their personal life around them and all this chatter goes on and they don't go on social media and it just kind of goes around them. And so it's when something like this pops up Racist? I'm against racism. I'll show up. I think the other I think the other dynamic that is operating is that there is a latent hunger for religiosity in human beings. 
And what this new religion has afforded people is, in many ways, a very public, cheap, a way to express a degree of religiosity that gives them moral standing. And so there's just simply a lot of that going on. And that's very, that's just human. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I'm preaching on the, the Sermon on the Mount now. The core of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus telling his disciples to beware of public religiosity. And so there is a critique both against what happened in the 80s and 90s with the rise of the religious right in America. And yeah. and so frankly, you know, when you have when you have democratic senators in the Capitol welcome station publicly on a knee and you have the president holding up a bible in front of a church, read the sermon on the mount what Jesus has to say about public religiosity. Jesus yeah. says, you know, you want to help poor people? Do it when nobody's looking and nobody sees. Um, you want to pray? Go into your room, close the door. Um, do you want to express self-denial in service of a better world? Do so in a way that nobody knows your name. That's Jesus' advice. Yes. But that's not very, very Trumpian. But, no, uh, it's not. It is not very <laughs> Trumpian. Uh, so, you know, you're making me rethink ahead, something just real quick. I've been wanting to do, uh, and and we will do. We are going to do a. I used to work in comedy, and I wanted to do a sketch video of Jesus doing the Sermon on the Mount, but preaching the woke gospel, where he's like, it's like uh, if you are white, um, stay in your lane, shut up and sit down, and you know, just kind of how absurd it would be to hear some of the tenets of wokeism coming from Jesus's mouth. But now, after talking with you, I'm thinking. It should be equally, you, you could equally put the prosperity gospel in his mouth, and it would also be absurd. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Take up your cross and follow me. Oh, I just have that, that, that private jet is a burden I bear. <laughs> <laughs> I, volunteer to, I volunteer to bear the burden for you if anyone has a private jet that they need to get rid of. <laughs> I'm, I'm down. As long as you said, I need to come with pilots and fuel because I can't afford that either. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I've got a question for you, Paul, because I know, I know you talked about this earlier and, and cause Carrie asked you about the susceptibility of Christianity to this, but I wasn't totally clear on your answer. So I'm going to kind of rephrase and ask again a little bit. So it's pretty clear to me why, uh, people who have, well, for lack of a better word, we'll just say nihilist people who have like, they have no religion. They have no belief system. They have like no moral belief system at all. It's just been torn down, replaced with nothing. It's pretty clear to me why they would be attracted to someone coming along saying, here is black and white and how to be a good person. And you can get virtue signaling points by doing X, Y, and Z. Go, go forth and go forth and virtue signal. That's, that's clear to me. Um, my question's really more about the susceptibility of Christianity in particular. And I wasn't sure if you were saying earlier that Christianity itself really isn't susceptible to this and it's some bastardization of christianity that's susceptible or if there's something about christianity by its nature that encourages these different shoots and threads to develop and like that's just that's part of christianity as such or is there a problem with modern christianity i, I is that distinction clear well, all of the above in a lot of ways i mean because you in this in this world, we will always have difficulty with definitions. I mean, who is the true Christian? What does it truly mean to be a Christian? That's a food fight that's gone on for 2,000 years. And it's an important one. I shouldn't dismiss it by calling it a food fight. It's an important one because, you know, I think 
as so so one of the things I say is that religion is religion is always and politics is now. And so in many ways we're we're working through values working through values as we talk and share trying out ideas and we're working through values playing them out. So so part of th- this would this certainly it, it makes complete sense that something like this would arise in a Christian nation because you already have the basic ideas of inherited guilt. It's like original sin. The basic ideas of humanism, which in many ways is sort of secularized Christianity. All of these values that Americans share, whether or not they, or many of these values that Americans share, whether or not they spend time praying to Jesus or say, I think you know, God is a fictitious story that we tell the children to help them feel better. All of this stuff is coming from Christianity. It's built into our history. It's built into our assumptions. And so part of why Christians can tend to be most susceptible to it, if we look at it just in terms of a a general population, well, it's probably likely that temperamentally, psychologically, sociologically, people who are more prone to be motivated by guilt go to church. And a lot of this is guilt-based. You know, it's yeah. so funny because you're looking at, you know, looking at, let's say, inherited lands of, of Native Americans. We, I, I went to one event, this is more popular in Canada, where they first stand up and acknowledge the, the tribe, you know, and I would phrase it, the tribe that was there when the Europeans first encountered them. Now, if you know that happened about, to be there, right at the that moment, happened to be there, right? If you <laughs> right. know anything about human <laughs> beings and maybe the, you know, the co- the original colonization of the Americas, there were probably two, three, four or more people groups that were massacred and forgotten by the time the Europeans got there. Mm-hmm. You know, where's the memorial for those people? And again, I, I look at this and say, you know, religion has capacities. To, to account for all of these layers of meaning and value. And as Jordan Peterson said, ideologies are crippled religions. Oh. They take certain aspects of religion, but they don't have the whole picture. So you can't actually, you can't actually inhabit the ideology fully. So let's say you're an all-out social justice warrior and you're going to be, you're going to try and stay up on all of these issues at present. Well, suicide is the most reasonable response to all of it. Why are you taking up white space in this world, Whitey? Off it and give the environment a break and let some person of color inherit your place. I mean, I, that's you, well can't, put. Yeah. you can't live this out. And what... Yeah. What a, what a fully formed religion will actually do because they are very historical and people have been wrestling with all of the values and tensions for centuries and centuries and have actually come up with, with theological and, and ritual and social means for engaging these things. Well, there actually you'll have something to live with and can probably not only have concern for the poor, not only have concern for racism, not only have concern for sexism, but also be able to have a marriage and have children and and help the planet in all these other ways that we're never paying any attention to. 
that that makes sense. I, lo I love the way you just put that because suicide is the it's the rational answer if you carry it to its conclusion. Um, That's right. Do you, do you think that uh, so I've thought about I've thought about this in Western culture for a lot, and I don't know the answer. I'm not a historian, and and you you've studied Christianity obviously way more than probably everyone anyone I've met. Uh, so, do you think that there's something about Western culture, and when I say Western culture, I mean Christian-based culture. Clearly, Western culture is based on on the tenets of Christianity. Um, is there something unique about Western culture's introspective uh, slant that's that's not present in other cultures? Like, is, is Western culture uniquely introspective? Because it seems like that might be a, a curse, but also a blessing to, to prosperity, but also leads us down these weird paths, if it's true. And I just would love to hear your thoughts. It is very true. And it is a product of Christianity. Two people to read on that score would be Tom Holland, his book Dominion, where he traces a lot of this, but also Rene Girard. I just Girard. bought that book, by the way, so that's on my list. Oh, so, yeah. good. Yeah. good. <laughs> but but who's, also... A, who's the other one? Rene Girard. Rene Girard... Um, had was fascinating thinker about scapegoat and sin, and and so basically what he said is that in the West, so and and this again comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, this doctrinal statement. It basically all of my sermons have misery, deliverance, gratitude. Here's the misery: life is suffering. You know, one way or another, suffering is going to find you in this world. It will, and it's and. A good bit of it's going to be your fault the older you get. A lot of it you inherit, but a good bit of it's going to be ways you destroy yourself. Deliverance. Well, what, what is the answer to all of this suffering? Well, it's a religious answer. It's, it's Christ and his sacrifice and his example and all of this. So he, in a sense, gives you a clean slate. But now you have the question, how should you live? And actually, that's where the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and all of this comes. All of this comes as gratitude. Now, here's the thing. So I'm grateful for the release from guilt that I am afforded through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How should I live? Well, I should do for others what Jesus did for me. Now, that will point you towards introspection, getting at my inner racist, getting at my inner sexist, finding out how, in fact, I am biased against people who have had a harder time in this world in some ways than I have. And that actually, if pursued, will make me the kind of person that we commonly in the West admire. Yeah, and right. so it's win-win. But you've got to be careful because you will see some people basically get swallowed by their guilt. So then as a pastor, I remind them, you're not trying to earn your way to God here. Jesus has done that for you. You're working on gratitude here. So if you have a failure or a lapse in gratitude, okay. You didn't say thank you as graciously as you could have, but you didn't bury yourself in a hole. So so in that way, again, a fully formed religion has accommodation for a lot of these elements. Well, and what you're talking about is like, again, that improves you personally. That's different than running around and wagging finger at other people that, that they have some sin and internal racism that they need to solve. You're, you're talking about fixing it yourself. Right. That's actually, that's one of the biggest things, just anecdotally speaking, personally speaking, looking back, that my old religion, my SGW religion lacked was this concept of grace and forgiveness and gratitude. 
And in fact, it um, in the way that it operates in interactions between people who are in the cult, I, I call it a cult, um, is that you when you express things like joy or gratitude, uh, oftentimes you are shot down and you it's it's seen as you ex, you uh, enjoying your privilege because only a privileged sinful person would have space in their life for joy or gratitude. <laughs> so it actively discourages gratitude. And, and you know, for a long time, I um, the, the further I've been out of it or I've gotten out of it, the more I'm able to see how a lot of my personal problems were intertwined with my belief system. But at the time when you're in it, I never would have connected the two. Um, it was my moral code this ideology offered me a moral code um but i was increasingly overcome with guilt uh shame um cognitive dissonance um nihilism uh you know depression all of these things that i I couldn't figure out where the roots were coming from and most of my friends in the belief system same thing some of the most miserable people i've ever spent time with (laughs) yet Yet we were we were on the right side of history. We were making we were you know creating good in the world. We were working to end racism and sexism, and we couldn't stand life. You know we couldn't. Yeah. There was no way to yeah. um, bear the the suffering or the misery that you talk about. There was no way out. So, it, I really appreciate you putting it. I made a note: three things: misery, deliverance, gratitude. It didn't offer deliverance or gratitude. No. Anyway, no. No. thank you. And- and when you pursue purity out of gratitude, then you can actually get meaning and and have that meaning, enjoyment, purpose in a healthy way. If you pursue purity out of guilt or an attempt to rescue someone or some self-salvationism, that purity pursuit will crush you. And that's what we see happening with people. Yes. Yes. How, how would wow. you say, like... How would a congregation inoculate themselves to this? Because this has got its tentacles everywhere right now, and they're very good at, uh, we use the term convergence, social justice convergence, where they infiltrate an organization and take it over. Um, Is there a way to inoculate this? What would you recommend to other congregations? I'd say there's no inoculation from sin. It's it's always around (laughs) us. It's always there. I, I, when... We have this human propensity, when we see a problem, to respond to it in a very direct, angry, legalistic, um, controlling way. And that's what the SAW crowd is doing. That's a very human response to a problem. Part of Jesus' response to a problem is quite a bit more patient, nuanced, and different. And so a lot of people expect me to come out with a lot of anger and denunciation against like in the context of this conversation, my theological rivals. Again, that is about that is about as counterproductive as yelling racist at racists. It, it doesn't change people's hearts. How are hearts changed? Okay, well, how did Jesus change hearts? Jesus had plenty of sharp and really clever words to say against some of his religious rivals. Um, there was space for that. But finally, Jesus won them over by his love and concern for them. And that is the Christian way. This is what I'm sucking on lately, Paul. <laughs> I suck at this. 
<laughs> I've got to get better at this. <laughs> well, Thank you. It's I'm really probably- it's really hard. And again, at the heart of Christianity is Jesus telling us, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And when he says pray, he's not saying, oh, Lord, may their houses fall in and their children get AIDS. That's not what he's saying. Um, This is Jesus' way. And again, we look at that and say, well, that's counterproductive because we know the way we conquer. We marginalize, kill, exclude, and silence our enemies. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't really do anything. It just perpetuates the culture war. How do you win? And look at the picture of those two guys saying, you know, we love each other. This is this is how we win. We love our enemies. And and often, you know, in certain times in history that gets you killed. But Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. So that's Christianity. Well. And I think it's much more effective and why this present fever will not kill the church. Well, I don't think you'll hurt it. Very- inspirational message maybe to end on to <laughs> do you think sure. <laughs> I really appreciate that I I agree with you and that's what I try to do but um, it's it's a struggle I've compared it to go going to the gym like if I master it one day oh I loved that person who I dislike and I did a good job of it today and then I am tempted to think I never have to go to the gym again because I went <laughs> one day <laughs> And and And, that gets to your question um, about, you know, this continued self-examination. Okay, I have failed to love my neighbor well today, but I'm working gratitude here. I'm not working duty or self-salvationism. So tomorrow, guess what? I'm going to try again to love my enemy. And I'll probably fail then, but maybe I'll do a little bit better. Better. And maybe at some point my enemy will say, well, Vander Clay, he's not sufficiently woke with us, but... But I don't know. There's something strange. Okay. He's an okay I'll guy. Strange. I'll hang out with like him. <laughs> I'll see what strange. he has to say. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I wish we had more time to talk to you because I've I've got a list of questions I want to ask you. But we, we can talk again sometime. That's I would fine. love to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much for joining. Uh, it's been a delightful conversation, and I hope you know I. Not everyone in our community is Christian, but a lot of people are, and I hope that they they really uh, this really helps them, and I think it will help atheists as well because a lot of the atheists in our community do appreciate the value I think of uh, what Christianity has brought to the world, and as I always say, would all much rather live in a Christian country than the one that the social justice warriors are trying to build. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So on that note, thank you, thank you very much for joining. Thank okay. you so much, Paul. Thank you both. It was a delight. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there.
Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. I have calculated a 97.8% chance that these are all rushing bots. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Social justice is a healthy way to experience feelings of moral superiority. That last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.